What is up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today is August 7th, 2020. I have a bunch of good stuff lined up for the next week or so. I had to take a couple of days off and realign myself, get some guests ready, and I've got some incredible shit coming up, starting with today's interview, which I am very fired up about. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody that this podcast is made possible by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I am going to shout out my patrons. I'm going to give you the two rules for the podcast on a Friday, and then we're going to get started with the damn show. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my exclusive Gold and silver bullion provider, JM Bullion. It is the only place that I buy my gold and silver. They always have great inventory. They turn around their orders very quickly. They've been in business for a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales, and they have a fantastic reputation that is well-earned. So if you're considering buying gold and silver bullion for the first time, please check out my friends over at JM Bullion. The link to them is in my podcast description or you can email kathy at jmbullion.com that's kathy with a k k-a-t-h-y at jmbullion.com tell her you want five dollars off your order and free shipping because qtr said so ladies and gentlemen check out my friends at jmbullion this podcast also brought to you by my dear friends over at the trader's path Pete Hedgetus started the Trader's Path because he wanted to start his own day trading community without the bullshit and nonsense of other day trading communities that oftentimes will front run their members. They're not really interested in the success of their community. They just want to rake in money. Uh, Pete belonged to a couple of communities like that and said, this is not for me. I'm going to start my own. So about a year ago, he said to me, Chris, I just started this service called the Trader's Path. I want to partner with your podcast Be a patron of yours, support yours. I love listening to your shit. And I said, hey, I'm happy to give you a shout out when I do a podcast as well. Pete Hedges is a great and honest guy to do business with. It's a wonderful service. A lot of my listeners have gone over there, have given me fantastic feedback about it. So check out my dear friends over at The Trader's Path. The link to that community is in my podcast description. They do daily watch lists, daily live streams, investor education. They trade red markets, green markets. They trade options. They trade stocks. Uh, Great community to have around you, especially as the market continues to go uh, basically apeshit right now. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus Steam Room. If you don't know what the Steam Room is then you're not down with the OGs of tracking hot money coming into the markets and using that hopefully to benefit. The Steam Room has been around for nearly a decade. It is a constant, never-ending, evolving piece of software that tracks and monitors big money coming into the options market. And it is a proprietary piece of software by my friends over at Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. The Steam Room is a beautiful way to track money coming into the options market because as many investors know, that can oftentimes telegraph moves that are going to happen in the equities market. And so it's great to know those things in advance. Nobody does it better than the Sang Lucci Steam Room. They've been tracking unusual options flow since before it was a thing. They basically put it on the map. Wall Street Jesus coined the term put sweepers, call sweepers. Nobody was saying that shit before these guys. These guys are the OGs, basically, of pointing out unusual options activity. And their software has evolved immensely over the last 10 years. It's the kind of software that can pay for itself if you know how to use it properly and you don't trade like a herb. 
If you want a free trial of the Steam Room, check out my brother Sanglucci. He's in the podcast description. Tell him QTR sent you and you want a free trial, and then tell him you want a discount after that, and he'll make sure that he hooks you up. Me and him, we got an understanding, if you know what I'm saying, folks. Lucci, good guy to do business with, and an honest person in an industry full of shitheads and scumbags. This podcast is also brought to you by some of my newest patrons, people like James F., George Baker, Dave Swingle. Thank you guys so much, Chris. And Chris Bott, Mike Fay, and Will, thank you guys for signing up recently. Gabriel Steuben and Roy Zimmerhands, I appreciate you. Mem55 is in the house, along with Joseph Reinier and Jake Dercole. Pawnbroker.com still here. Some people that have been with me for a while that continue to be patrons, like Dylan and Ed Roop and Adam Wise. Thank you guys very, very much for your continued support, as well as Space Ventures Capital. I think I think that's what it is. The name got cut off there a little bit. Mahilo Heiler, thank you so much for continuing to support Mike and my buddy Anonymous. I see you if you signed up on September 19th, 2018 and you want to remain anonymous. This is me shouting you out and saying thank you while keeping your name quiet. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus. Two rules for the podcast today. It's Friday, and we are heading into happy hour. This podcast always has a two-drink minimum. The way that you do that is you locate two alcoholic drinks, you put them in front of you, and you take them down any way you want to at any pace you want to, but you got to make sure you get two in before or during the length of this podcast. Why, folks? Because it's my podcast, my rules. If you don't like it, go rate it one star with the rest of the people that hate me. I could give a fuck. This podcast... Also, great time to remind you, is not investment advice. Do your research elsewhere. I'm not an investment advisor. I'm, I hold no licenses, no registrations. I don't wear suits or any of that shit. Folks, I really have no clue what's going on, so make sure you realize this is not my investment advice. This is just open-minded discussions about things that I find very interesting, and any dumbass moves you make on your own are your own fault. All right. Very excited to have with me today Andy Schechtman from Miles Franklin. Uh, Andy became a licensed financial planner back in the day, specializing in Swiss Franc investments and alternative investments. And at Miles Franklin, uh, at Miles Franklin, sorry, folks, ladies and gentlemen, I'm only on my third cup of coffee. Cut me some slack. At Miles Franklin, a company that has eclipsed five billion dollars in sales. Uh, Andy has developed an operation that maintains trust, collaboration, and ethical behavior. He works in precious metals investments. How are you today, Andy? Well, I'm only on my first cup, man, so I hope uh, you guys will cut me some slack as well. I'm doing all right. All doing right. all right, Chris. Thanks for having me. Beautiful. I'm happy that you're on, and uh, I'm, I'm really – I got a million things I want to ask you about. I heard this interview you did uh, a week or two ago where uh, you were talking about the gold to silver ratio, and you were making – even with gold at $26 – I'm sorry, with silver at $26, you were making this incredible bull argument for silver – uh, right off the bat, and I wanted to see if maybe you could to to start lay out some of your thoughts there, and we can kind of go from there. That's no problem. the The gold to silver ratio is it's one of those things that that has has been in place for the better part of six thousand years, and so when you when we talk about trying to discern direction from uh, a ratio. It's a little deeper than meets the eye, I guess. Let me explain. First of all, if we go back to the beginning of time, uh, geologically, 
silver and gold have had a 15.5 to 1 relationship, meaning if you dug a big hole somewhere and uh, found gold and silver, chances are that 15.5 times more product would be silver than would be gold. Um, and that's probably why for thousands of years we saw a 16 to 1 relationship between gold and silver in monetary history. Um, if we look at the last couple hundred years due to the industrial revolution and whatever other reason you want to throw at it, the average ratio between gold and silver has been roughly 45 to 1. My friend Keith Newmeyer, who is the CEO of First Majestic Silver Mining Company, tells me and tells the public that what is coming out of the ground now is closer to 6 to 1, meaning it is a depleting asset. Silver is found in nature in a form called epithermal, and that means it's found very close to the surface. Uh, and therefore, the majority of the big deposits have been found decades ago. The low-lying fruit was picked decades ago. Right. In fact, so much so that 70% of all the silver that is brought to market these days is a form of byproduct mining, meaning uh, you, you, you're you digging a hole for tin or for copper or for zinc or for gold, and what do you know? You come across silver. So the majority of everything that is uh, mined nowadays, 70%, is not a direct silver mine. It is a function specifically and totally of byproduct mining. Uh, when we talk about a ratio that is currently somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 1. It's still very much rarefied air. Now, Chris, I've been talking to people for the last year plus, telling them, begging them to switch from gold to silver. This is a ratio we've been playing for a very long time, doing this for the last 30 years, um, whenever we had these opportunities. In March of this year, we saw the largest disparity between the two in human history, at 120 to 1, it has never since recorded time been at that ratio. Um, it's been regressing to the mean over the last several weeks uh, to where we are right now, still north of 80 to 1, or excuse me, just south of 80 to 1, rather. But I will still tell you that uh, the fundamentals which we can get into on many levels are screaming that that is still a opportunity of a generation. The last time in 2010 that we saw a 80 to 1 ratio, with the exception of the last year or so, uh, within a year, it had snapped back to its historical mean or thereabouts. In fact, it overshot it to about 37 to 1 with $50 silver in 1917 or so gold. That was the previous high at that time. But do the math, and that works out to about 37 to 1. I guess the moral of the story is that the further away you get from historical averages, from long-term established averages, the greater the magneticism that pulls you back to the mean. And uh, I think if I had to guess, when I look at the fundamentals, when I look at the positioning of J.P. Morgan, both what they've accumulated and now the way that they are positioned on the COMEX market, I would expect a much, much higher silver price. And if you did nothing other then take today's gold price of, uh, let's call it um, $2,030, and divide it by, let's call it 45 
that would give you a historical re relationship, at least of the last 150 years, and put silver at $45. Now, I, I would argue that because the low-lying fruit has been picked, because what's coming out of the ground is single digits instead of 45 to 1, that that's woefully undervalued. Um, and that's why you get people talking about $100 silver, $200 silver, because quite frankly, it is a necessity to have it in industry. But it is also going to, I believe, before this is all said and done, regain its uh, notoriety as being a monetary metal as well. Yeah, talk about how much, because one thing that I learned from your interview that you did, and I know that a lot of people I speak with may not be aware of, a lot of us, we are critical of central banks. And so precious metals appeal to us in that regard. Uh, gold, we know, has limited uses in uh, industry, but silver is really uh, used prolifically in industry. How much does the supply of silver drying up? So in addition to this central bank circus that we have going on right now, there's this other bull case that kind of exists anyway, and that's that silver mines are drying up. So, I mean, how much of a factor... Is that going to play, and, and how much do you think the market has priced that in? Because right now, Andy, it appears to me the market's pricing in the gold-to-silver ratio and the market's pricing in all of the central bank mayhem, but maybe not the, uh, the lack of supply. Well, I think it's important before we talk about that to talk about a market that has been a joke really, I guess you could call it that. And as I talked in that Palisades radio interview um, about the, um, you know, for many years I would give public talks about uh, J.P. Morgan manipulating the metals market. In all of my public speaking, uh, I would talk about this and cite evidence. And I even went as far as, as to, to uh, get crap from Doug Casey uh, who told me that there's just no way that the traders could keep their mouth shut for as long as, as this has been going on uh, for it to be conspiracy, that this was just the way that the market behaved. And I disagreed with him, both publicly and privately, um, that that this market was being manipulated. And so before we, we even talk about supply and market fundamentals, it's important to note that for the last 12 years, uh, J.P. Morgan has been the largest concentrated short position on the COMEX market, really in the history of the market. Um, in 2008, they inherited Bear Stearns' short position. And there's a wonderful interview for your listeners to listen to. Google Chris Marcus, Bart Chilton. Bart Chilton was the former Fed governor, or excuse me, FT, uh, the former uh, CFTC governor, the Commodity Future Trading Commission. Uh, where he admitted what I'm about to tell you and then died three weeks later. Now, I'm not saying there's a coincidence there, simply a uh, fact, and maybe he was sick and wanted to get this stuff off his chest, but um, the bottom line is is that um, J.P. Morgan was brought in to inherit Bear Stearns' short position in 2008. Uh, they were told that because their short position combined with Bear Stearns, where, who at the time had the largest short position in the history of the COMEX market in silver, 
would be in violation of position limits. So Jamie Dimon told Hank Paulson, listen, we'll do this, but I want some time to get into to position limits. Um, and I don't know what the time was, maybe 90 days. At the end of the 90-day period or what have you, not only did they not pare down their short position to get within CFTC guidelines, they in fact increased them. And Bart Chilton, who was at the time the head of the CFTC, the Commodity Future Trading Commission, went to his superiors and said, These, this bank needs to be prosecuted. They're breaking the law. They're violating antitrust. They're in violation of our agreement. And they're thumbing their nose at us. And this needs to be done immediately. Well, he was told to back down, that it was a political decision. Uh, and J.P. Morgan skated away from prosecutorial immunity. Um, this was the only time this has ever been admitted, and Bart Chilton, as I mentioned, died three weeks later. So we'll fast forward, and let's just talk a little bit about this and how it's created uh, really massive distortions in supply and in price. So if you listen to Ted Butler, he'll tell you through public information that for 12 years, J.P. Morgan, on the tens of thousands of short trades that they had, Never lost a penny. Never a penny. Now, that's a mathematic impossibility. That would be your favorite baseball player in a 600 at-bat season never getting out, ever. Never even walking. 600 for 600, <laughs> which is impossible. Maybe, and they for using, them, maybe they're using split-strike conversions. Whatever they were doing, they figured out a way to, <laughs> to, to rig the market and to never, ever, ever, not even once, lose a trade. And so it was this environment that had me screaming uh, in my podium time that, listen, this is not how markets work. And I showed all sorts of charts of the way the market was behaving. and We could talk all about that for hours. But suffice it to say, vindication came this last March. And I'd like to draw a conclusion. And not only we'll get to your question about supply in a moment, but I think it's important to lay the backdrop. In March, the Justice Department levied six federal indictments against six traders uh, on the J.P. Morgan Precious Metals Trading Desk. These weren't your average uh, indictments. These were RICO racketeering charges. This is what Rudy Giuliani used to bring down the New York crime families. This yeah. is what, yep. what was used to bring down Al Capone. And so you're talking about uh, federal indictments that allow not just the traders to get um, in trouble, but also the entire bank. Now, it's been said that the traders have turned state evidence and are implicating senior management, and this uh, investigation is still ongoing as we speak. If your listeners were to Google J.P. Morgan Rico, you would see an article by Bloomberg where the Justice Department labels their precious metals trading desk a criminal enterprise. If you look at a Kitco six-month snapshot of silver and gold and look at March 17th and look at where we are today. It's straight up since March 17th. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Um, as I mentioned, who needs to accumulate physical when you can do tens of thousands of trades, control the market with your 160 million ounces of silver on the market, now, they have accumulated north of 1 billion ounces total, most of it off the market, which right. is the single largest physical position the world has ever seen. But they were able to control the market indefinitely uh, and make ring the cash register unlimitedly and make just print money forever. 
by sucking in the speculators, uh, selling the options, and, and, and smashing down the price, up and down, rinse, wash, repeat. They did it forever. But along the way, they used these manipulative price techniques to amass 10 times what the Hunt brothers tried to acquire, over a billion ounces, the single largest physical position of silver the world has ever seen until they got busted. Um, and there are some massive things happening on Colmex, which we should get to in a moment, that is changing the landscape. But the bottom line is simply this. the These distortions, these manipulations have consequences. And those consequences have um, wreaked havoc on supply. And the um, I believe that the ultimately the silver supply or the lack thereof is one of the main reasons you saw J.P. Morgan corner the physical market, really, by accumulating the largest position the world's ever seen, because ultimately they know that um, product is going to be, or silver is going to be very hard to obtain, as it is a depleted asset. In fact, uh, a branch of the U.S. government several years ago, it's something to the extent of U.S. Uh, Geological Survey uh, Commission came out and said that they believe silver would be the first element struck from the periodic table of elements as it is such a depleted asset that it is becoming harder and harder and harder to find. And if you look at all of the silver that's been used in industry for the last 80 years, just about anything that conducts electricity, from a simple light switch down to anything that you've ever held in your hand your entire life or touched, that, that conducts electricity from a refrigerator to a simple light switch to a TV to a hairdryer to a cell phone. It all has a little tiny bit of silver in it. Uh, and all of that stuff, be, you know, that when you throw it away or you're done with it, it goes into a landfill. And that minute amount of silver is not economical to recycle it. Right. And so right. above ground, above ground is depleted, below ground is depleted. Uh, you're looking at a, at a massive, massive shortfall ultimately i think of not only investable silver but also industrial silver and so um it's only just the very beginning but those shortfalls in uh in supply you could attribute in a large way to the manipulation of the price the unjustified low price um has allowed a company like jp morgan to amass that much and ultimately has created distortions all the way down the line, many of which we don't even yet see. But I do think on every single level, honestly, and I've been saying this for a while, that the lack of available product, at least in my industry, in terms of investable, will define going forward, will completely define the gold and silver market. And I think on the outside, people will say, shit, I missed my, my chance. The price got away from me, got too expensive. But for people who own it and want to buy more and wish they had bought more, I will look at the inability to source quality product at a reasonable price with any um, expediency whatsoever. So I'm sorry to be so long-winded, but I just want you to know that the price of silver uh, has been distorted, as has the supply. And I just think that the best thing people can do to uh, – to combat this type of environment is to simply acquire physical silver and put it away. Because I think it will define, the shortfall will define the market in many, many, many ways moving forward. Yeah, listen, well, I 
want to encourage you to take as much time to speak as possible because this type of content is exactly why I do a podcast because you're not going to hear this shit on CNBC and this is important and this is what we need to know, especially the people that are interested in precious metals, the people that are, you know, skeptical of monetary policy. This stuff is exceptionally important and I hadn't even heard, I pulled up that Bloomberg article while you were speaking about JP Morgan and that's exactly what they say. They say the metals desk was, quote, a criminal enterprise operating inside the bank for nearly a decade uh, and that they had charged uh, the head of the uh, J.P. Morgan's global precious metals trading operation and two others with uh, with uh, RICO uh, charges, which, like you said, Giuliani used to bring down the mob. Uh, this stuff is exceptionally important. And the fact that J.P. Morgan is in there cornering the silver market should tell people the same thing that central banks hoarding gold tells me, which is there's a reason for it. Um, the price is saying one thing, but really the case that you're making, in addition to the central banking circus, again, the shortfall in supply case really seems to, I mean, would that, in your opinion, make $100, $200 silver a, a potential reality? I mean, people would call you crazy for saying that now, but you think that that's, that's a reality that could possibly occur, right? I think it is most certainly a reality, but I'd like to take a step back for a moment and, and say why I think that's a reality. Sure. And and, and that would be um, without question, at least in my opinion, uh, due to the way that the central banks are viewing gold. And, you know, for, for as long as I've been in this industry for 30 years, the central banks were always selling their gold. And it just never made sense to me. Right. I couldn't quite understand why they were always capping the price of gold and selling it when, you know, a group of, of bankers that were that wealthy looking out for the best interests of their country, you would think they would want to buy gold instead of sell it short of course. And, uh, and, and get rid of it. Since 1944, after the Bretton Woods Agreement, after World War II, the only tier one asset on the planet has been U.S. dollars and U.S. treasuries. And if you Google the definition of a tier one asset, you'll find it is a riskless asset. Right. And so the central banks have been accumulating treasuries and dollars literally for the last 80 years. And it was the only form of collateral that would be used in trade amongst central banks. Gold, on the other hand, had always been classified as a tier three asset which meant that only 50% of its value was calculated on the balance sheet. And this is the reason they didn't want to own it, on top of the fact that it was unpredictable in price, it paid no interest, cost money to store, but the Tier 3 asset meant that any amount of gold that they had on their balance sheet would would entail a 50% haircut in valuation. And so it would inhibit their ability to sell bonds and to do international business. And so when, especially when the young kids would take over from the gray hairs, they'd say, what do we want this shit for it? No interest, <laughs> uh, unpredictable, you know, equity markets are going up, let's just buy treasuries and then we can sell more bonds and create income for our country. And so they were always selling it. Quietly, all of a sudden, through 2017, let's just say, however, they were all net sellers, all the Western banks. Right. And then, I noticed in 2018 when I started really hammering these these speeches on central bank uh, accumulation, 
that out of nowhere, the central banks in 2018 bought more gold than they did cumulatively the 60 years previously combined. In 2019, those numbers were up 90%. Out of nowhere, they're just massively accumulating it. This year, by the way, they're up close to 100%. But in 2019, April, after a year and a half of front-running this declaration, the central banker's central bank in Basel, Switzerland, the Bank of International Settlements, quietly reclassified gold, now get this, as the only other tier one asset on the planet, the only other one, as a riskless asset. And they front ran that decision by a year and a half. So when we talk about importance, <laughs> that that is the single biggest important event of my career, the J.P. Morgan prosecution now backing out of the the uh, futures market short they're now net long those two events unequivocally being the most important events in my career because what you have are the most sophisticated investors on the planet right. signaling a change and so they are continuing to gobble up gold now there's a 90% correlation throughout all of history between gold and silver as one goes so too will the other so I do think that gold will go higher than anybody thinks possible because it will ultimately, I believe, be, um, well, look, let me just say, no matter what I think it'll be, when you have the most sophisticated, well-funded, and well-informed investors on the planet massively acquiring it, uh, it should tell you what the long game is for it and reclassifying it right. as the only other riskless asset on the planet next to dollars and treasuries, which I would argue are no longer riskless. Right. And that's probably why that they did this. So uh, the accumulation of gold by the central banks should be all your listeners need to know about the future of gold. And because gold and silver, even though they don't follow each other penny for penny, they are tied at the hip and do exhibit a 90% correlation since the beginning of time. So I honestly believe we'll see gold approaching or over $3,000 by the end of the year. And I'm not one for making price predictions. But there are many reasons why I believe that will be the case. And if that's the case, to see silver at $100 could very, very, very easily be in the cards. Yeah, the other interesting thing, too, is remember people used to argue gold doesn't pay yield. And now with real rates you know, at negative 100 basis points or negative 150 base, wherever the hell they are, negative somewhere, you know, gold's yield of zero actually looks very attractive, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, it sure beats the heck out of, uh, you know, negative. And, and that's right. You know, when you talk about interest rates uh, at, at uh, six-tenths of a percent or less on the 10-year note, when I started in this industry, um, Chris, you could buy a, a uh, U.S. Treasury earning nine percent, and so the wealthy, the wealthy people would put a couple million bucks in in, the, in layered treasuries, make one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year on a two million dollar investment, never touch your principal, live like a king, and um, uh, pass on your principal to your heirs. Well, that same two million dollars now would net you just over eleven thousand instead of one eighty. Right. <laughs> uh, and 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 so when you talk about the bond market being a viable source, in fact, they used to call it risk on, risk off. This is another important topic in that, you know, people are thinking, where do I put my money? It used to be that stocks were risk on 
and when you work and you're in your you know younger years you put money into the stock market because you can risk the speculation and you hope for for uh, some compounding of your your value and of your portfolio through uh, investing in, in stocks and blue chip stocks what have you well uh, that's really uh, not the case anymore because uh, this, the bond market, which used to be called risk-off, rather, risk-on stocks, risk-off bonds, uh, the money, as we would get older, we would put our money in the risk on from the risk-on category into the risk-off category, right. the bonds, paying a fair rate of return. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. And so what has really happened is that that inverse correlation between stocks and bonds, risk-on, risk-off, is gone, which creates a very dangerous environment. When you have these two asset classes that are now positively correlated, that's bad news because as interest rates rise, as they have to, it collapses not only the bond and the stock market in unison, but also the real estate market as they are all positively correlated to interest rates. And so, you know, uh, I think, or shall we say, inversely correlated to interest rates. As as uh, interest rates rise, all three markets collapse, but they're positively right. correlated to each other instead of inversely correlated. And that's really big. There is nowhere safely to hide any longer uh, in, the, in the respect that you used to be able to hide in the safety of U.S. Treasuries. Now, with interest rates uh, under 1%, and money creation and inflation running well above three, four, five, six percent. You talk to John Williams of ShadowStats.com; he'll tell you the CPI numbers are complete crap. That real inflation, based upon just the metrics of what they used to be under previous presidential administrations, is probably closer to ten or twelve percent, double digit. And so, when you talk about uh, earning six tenths of a percent over ten years, uh, and and you know. Uh, being uh, succumbing to all that inflation, real interest rates are quite negative right now. That's right. So, yeah, I think that uh, that is a, a problem in and of itself is that there there are no alternatives any longer with safety. And uh, so people are being forced into speculation in the stock market that it's at its all-time highs with 50 million people unemployed, completely detached from Main Street. Right. Uh, and and a bond market that has enjoyed a 25-year bull run that I would argue is the mother of all bubbles because um, the very, 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 very wealthy, uh, they put their money in the safety of bonds even if they get back less in real terms than they started with because, you know, it's always been considered the ultimate bastion of safety. Yeah, but it's I would psychological, argue right? Yes, it is. Well, because the U.S. government, you know, is, is standing behind that. But I would argue that um, uh, ultimately interest rates have to rise because let's paint this picture for a minute. You have a 10-year Treasury paying six-tenths of a percent. Who in their right mind would buy that with interest rates actually, uh, real interest rates actually negative? Um, no one really would do that, and very few would. Um maybe the ultra wealthy because there are no alternatives, but very few people would ever contemplate that. So the federal reserve has been the entity stepping in to keep the low end or the back end of the, uh, the bond market quiet, lower interest rates, keep it calm to maintain a perception of well-being. They're the ones buying the bond market. 
uh, to, heaven forbid, let interest rates rise. So they're left with two choices. Choice number one, continue to buy the back end of the bond market, continue to monetize, to create money to buy the bonds because no one else is, and that keeps interest rates low. Well, in doing that, you're, you're unleashing a massive torrent of inflation, and that inflation ultimately, because of the monetization, like Weimar Republic, Germany, will lead to higher interest rates. Yeah, you keep printing and printing and printing. At some point, our, the foreign entities will say, why the hell would we ever buy right. treasuries from an insolvent government creating wicked amounts of inflation, paying next to nothing on a coupon? They wouldn't. So if the Fed's the only one buying it and and they're creating all of this inflation to uh, to create money to buy the bond market, to keep interest rates low, ultimately inflation goes up, which creates... Uh, higher interest rates, which collapses the economy. Or option number two, they back away from the bond market, they stop being the buyer of last resort, uh, and the interest rates collapse, or, or excuse me, interest rates go to the moon and the bond market collapses under its own weight, creating the greatest depression of all time. Both roads lead to the same destination, and that is of higher interest rates, and a collapsing economy, whether they monetize it and forestall the future right. or just back away and let it collapse, both roads lead to higher interest rates if you're talking a real economy. And um, when that happens, you're talking the mother of all bubbles because stocks and bonds are the mother of all collapses. Because stocks and bonds are not inversely correlated any longer, they are positively correlated and inversely correlated to interest rates, it's game over when interest rates rise. The stock market collapses, the bond market implodes, the real estate market implodes, and when that happens, there are very few places on the planet Earth to safely put your money. Precious metals certainly being at the top of that list. So, yeah, we are in a, a very interesting time, Chris, a period of time that um, I'm very concerned about moving forward in terms of lack of alternatives. And... Um, so, yes, I do think that gold and silver have never been more important. Not only are the most influential traders on the globe front-running all of this trouble, reclassifying it as a riskless asset, massively accumulating it since 2018, but the alternatives that once were a, a bastion of safety, a place we could hide in the safety of U.S. Treasuries, is a sucker's game. And uh, when that collapses, the market risk alone of that collapsing uh, under its own weight, under the monetization or the backing away of the Fed, either one, or the backing away of all the foreign entities who no longer want our bonds, is, is setting us up for a very, very difficult time. Yeah, and it's hilarious how people that lay out exactly what you just laid out in relatively simple terms and I mean, it, you can connect the dots from where we are now to exactly the situation that you're talking about very easily. I mean, that was a very logical argument, and it's hilarious how that is often written off as, oh, you know, just a, a doomsday sayer, somebody that, you know, wants everything to go terribly. And it's so difficult to convince people sometimes that nobody wants this enormous economic collapse, but really... If you follow the steps logically, it seems to be the direction that we're heading. A question I have for you is, one of the things that I often think about, Andy, is how the prisoner's dilemma of sorts 
between the central banks of the world can enable what we're doing to move forward for longer than it normally would. I mean, eventually, I still believe it's a mathematical uh, certainty that we get to the point of this catastrophic collapse. My question to you, and I've, I've asked other people this too, is, you know, if the, if the four or five major central banks of the world that are really pulling the strings of the global economy get together and decide collectively that they want to work together, uh, isn't, isn't there a situation where they could uh, prevent such a collapse simply by agreeing to prevent it? Well, I mean, I guess we could go full monetary, modern monetary theory and try to print our way out of it. But I think we're too far down the rabbit hole. They've used all of their tools uh, to the point where there's $20 trillion of negative yielding bonds around the world. I mean, you can just continue to go negative, I guess, <laughs> and, 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 and make people through um, you know negative interest rates not save their money and speculate and continue to drive asset prices higher and higher and higher. So, I mean, that's kind of what you said has really been, it's one of the defining characteristics of my industry in that we've been saying this stuff forever. I've always felt like the little boy who cries wolf because what we've talked about is rooted in economics and mathematics with sprinkling of old school logic on top of it. And that those kinds of things typically come true, but when you're dealing with such a high-stakes game like we are, and I do think the Western central banks have all gotten together over the last decade plus to do these things, last 20 years plus to do these things, but uh, they've gone too far down the rabbit hole with a faulty Keynesian-based economic model that ultimately doesn't work. Keynesian economics is based upon spending and consumption holding up a mountain of debt and you go into debt you build things and then you try to sell it for more uh, uh, to uh, also to maintain uh, that debt and to ultimately pay it off but it's risky it's kind of like the the straw house in the in the three little pigs uh, whereas a, a Austrian based economic model is is really a better one and I hope uh, we ultimately when when this system fails go to an Austrian model where you build prosperity through savings, investment, and reinvestment. There's your brick house. And you do not have a mountain of debt that collapses upon you when consumption stops. And COVID is certainly the the spear that has pricked that bubble. But, right. you know, I, I, I don't think that the Western central banks can band together any longer to do anything because they've gone too far down the road on this Keynesian-based monetary experiment. But maybe this is why the Western central banks quietly, no one talks about it. And, you know, I talk about it in every podcast and every interview for the last, since July of last year. I have not not talked about it. You know, people may get tired of hearing it who hear me on multiple podcasts, but it is the most important thing, period. When you have the most sophisticated investors, and to your point, all banding together to reclassify gold as a tier one asset, Maybe that's the life raft that they've built, realizing that sure. this ship is taken on too much water and there is no way to ultimately save it. So let's quietly <laughs> reclassify it, give ourselves times to re time to reposition before the public catches on, because they don't talk about it anywhere. You have to really search to find that info on the reclassification. Um, but I would argue that with interest rates where they are, with negative interest rates around the globe, with real negative interest rates here, 
with as much money and debt has been created and all the distortions that have come from the manipulations, I don't think they can change the outcome. Look, a trillion seconds ago was 31,688 years ago. And we have created $9 trillion or more, really, since last September. And uh, it took this country 300 years to create, excuse me, yeah, 300 years to create $800 billion in wealth. Right. And the Federal Reserve is printing $9 trillion like it's just no big That's deal sick. in the last 10 months. Right. So where the seeds of hyperinflation have been sown, the places to go with safety have been really kneecapped. And I, I think that they have for a very long time held this back and created uh, these illusions and distortions of wealth. But um, I would argue that I don't think that they can really band together any longer to forestall it any much longer than Mother Nature will allow it. And we're getting closer to the end of that that experiment. So no, I don't think they can because the tools are gone. If we had interest rates at six or seven percent, hell yeah, there'd be a ton they could do, you know. But now, at interest rates at zero or negative, there ain't much they can do but right. continue right. what they're doing. In other words, the mantra of the Federal Reserve at this point is inflate or die. It's either inflate or default. That those are the only two options I think that are left on the table. And once, so two questions for you: once they napalm the global economy. What does that post-apocalypse uh, global economy look like once everything kind of burns to the ground? And an extension of that question is, do you think it's possible that governments confiscate gold and silver again like they once did? Well, you're beginning to see what happens with the napalm. I mean, you have the stag part of the inflation already with, you know, 130 million businesses excuse me, 130,000 small businesses closed forever. Um, restaurants, hospitality, bars, dead. Um, airlines and uh, le- hospitality, leisure, which is travel, is, is 10% of global GDP, dead. I mean, the, the, the economy is, is, is walking wounded right now. And remember, if you stop the consumption and spending in a Keynesian-based model, the debt falls on you like a wet blanket and smothers you. And that's, that is what's happening. That's the stag part. And, you know, I, I see it getting a whole lot worse before it really gets much better. Uh, the inflation part is coming. In fact, in 2008, when the banks were bailed out, uh, that, that all that did is blow up asset prices because the money went directly to wall street and wall street banks. And the big, the big institutions who used all that money and the low interest rates to buy back their shares and to blow up all the asset prices that enriched them. Right. This time, and so that didn't translate into inflation, that translated into asset price inflation. But this time, the money is going directly to the people and PPP and, and the CARES Act and the 600 bucks a month and the 1200 bucks And, you know, that's you're talking going right into M1, M2 money supply, blowing up, creating inflation in an environment that has a broken supply chain, people being unproductive. I mean, you're, you're sowing the seeds for really big problems. And, and I guess I would call it hyperstagflation. That's where um, hyperinflation meets the Great Depression because you have little or no economic growth. You have 
massive unemployment, higher taxes, uh, no growth, and rising prices. And I think that's a really scary for future. And I see it coming. Honestly, I do see that coming on our horizon as the Fed does all that they can do, all they know how to do, and that's print and hand out money, this full monetary, modern monetary theory bullshit. But um, do I think that they will confiscate gold? And my answer really is no, I don't. And um, in 1933, when President Roosevelt confiscated gold, April of 1933, in his first act in office, um, it was a different environment. Number one, you had patriotism. Uh, you don't really have that anymore. People, uh, I think, would not take too well to an IRS agent knocking on their front door saying, show me your gold, uh, especially people that I sell gold to. Most of them believe in guns and privacy, and most of them are libertarians, and, and they would have a real problem with that. Uh, number two, um, I think the government understands this because in 1933, gold was money. Everybody owned it. Now... Uh, no one owns it. One out of every few hundred have ever held a gold coin before. Right. But I think there are a couple of vehicles that would allow them to have their cake and eat it too. You have GLD, which is the third or fourth largest stockpile of gold in the world, the ETF. And uh, that's administrated or administered by HSBC Bank, one of the most corrupt, nefarious banks on the planet. Uh, and when you talk about Fox guarding <laughs> the hen house, you have J.P. Morgan, the administrator of the second largest stockpile of silver in the world, only second to their own, and that is J.P. Morgan administrator, administering the um, SLV account. And so, you know, they're indicted on manipulating the, the racketeering charges on manipulating the market, and yet they're still the, the administrator of SLV. So that, you know, you could come in on a Friday night, people have whatever money they have in, in GLD and SLV. And on Monday morning, all of that money is now in your money market account. And those two accounts have been closed. Um, and they raise their palms to the sky and say, what? Well, we didn't do anything, that being the U.S. government. We didn't confiscate gold or silver. In fact, you can still own it physically in the United States. All we did were close these two funds, which, hey, you can't take possession of it anyway. Read the prospectus unless you're an authorized participant, which is basically the commercial banks that funded the uh, GLD and SLV. You can't take possession of it. So they pay everyone their fair share price in newly printed dollars. They're sitting on the second largest stockpile of silver in the world, larger than all central bank holdings, and the single, uh, the third or fourth largest stockpile of gold in the world. All of it held in a in a vault or vaults administered by the cartel commercial banks who have been holding down the price to begin with. And they wouldn't have to go door to door to NRA uh, touting libertarians who would tell them to get lost. And uh, I think it would provide a perfect environment to have their cake and eat it too. Because if our creditors feared that type of nationalization of assets, like Venezuelan style, not only would they dump everything, treasuries and securities, but I don't think we'd ever be trusted ever again as anything in light of a world reserve currency uh, when you are nationalizing uh, gold, when communist China and, and other countries around the world openly promote it and endorse it to their citizens and their population. So, no, I don't think we'll see confiscation of gold, but I do think you will see 
very likely some sort of maybe uh, punitive um, high taxes on selling or whatever it may be. But you know what? You have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst and right. not look not look at those as uh, as a possible outcome really to, to focus on. Just realize that, you know, it's better than being caught in a, an environment where the dollar is absolutely collapsing and you have nothing to protect you from. And so here again, hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. Those are words to live by right now as far as I'm concerned. Andy, how much of the unrest in the country right now do you attribute to the Fed shoehorning open the inequality gap versus uh, systemic racism, right? The, the media and the government right now are telling the world that systemic racism is dividing the country. But when I look at it and I look how the Fed is responding to something like COVID and the way that they've responded to things the 2008 crisis, for example, and the implications of the policies that they put into place, which essentially I always what I've been doing here for COVID is saying, all right, well, the Fed has printed X amount uh, that equates to whatever, 30 or 40 thousand dollars per U.S. citizen. Most U.S. citizens are only seeing uh, $1,200 of that if they're lucky and are bearing the inflationary cost of the additional Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars that are going to major, you know, corporations. They're going to buy corporate bonds. Uh, It's a horrible misallocation of purchasing power. Uh, How much of the unrest in the country do you think is due to economic inequality, and perhaps maybe we just haven't recognized that yet, or do you think that the narrative that we're on of uh, systemic racism is is really a problem? Well, I think that's, you know, well said in that the racism has been around and prejudice since the beginning of time. Um, but this inequality that is being created and decimating the middle class is going to create far more problems. And so, um, yeah, you're seeing a major dichotomy between those who have money and those who don't, the enriching of of all of the people on Wall Street, the gutting of the middle class, and um, you know, it, it's it's the reaction by the government is what is collapsing the middle class. People who have worked their whole lives to build businesses, many uh, generational businesses, other people who just started uh, and had the misfortune of, of starting a business uh, before this happened. I mean, I have a friend who put uh, many six figures worth of uh, dollars into uh, a travel agency in November. We bought a travel agency here in Minneapolis. I mean, talk about poor timing. Uh, you have people whose lives are being destroyed by the reaction of the of the government. And, uh, you know, you own a couple bars or a couple restaurants, you're in trouble. How about you own uh, a couple apartment buildings and your upper middle class? Uh, talk about counterparty risk. Um, you know, that's one of the neat things about gold and silver is that they they uh, are the only assets on the planet that are not simultaneously someone else's liability. You don't have that counterparty risk. But to me, the real the real anxiety, the real separation, the real um, trouble will be less in uh, black versus white, you know, black versus red, white versus 
yellow. I mean, it does, the colors are stupid and people are people, but the, the separation between those who got it and those who don't in terms of wealth is going to really be bad, in my opinion, where, you know, uh, you're going to have people struggling just to make ends meet. God forbid interest rates go to the moon and, and, and you'll see the greatest depression of all time. And so you have a, a, a very small subsection of very, very wealthy people and then the rest. Um, and so, you know, I, I think a couple of years ago, I heard a very interesting statistic. I'm going to try to get it right. I'll probably be off a little bit on the numbers, but I think this kind of exemplifies where we're heading. And it was a, a statistic about New York City. And I think the number was nine and a half million people in New York City, of which 45,000 people, and that's mostly the Wall Street guys and girls, paid 50% of the taxes. Right. And so you had 9,455,000 uh, pay the other half. And so that's kind of the dichotomy that we have here that's going to create, I think, a lot of problems socially, and that is the uh, people who have money and wealth and those who are, are just trying to put food on the table and keep a roof above their head. That's the environment we are heading down right now with the, the Fed's reaction, just destroying, uh, you know, middle America with, with, with the lockdowns. And the thing that's so nefarious about it, Andy, is it's really, it's not an in-your-face looting of the middle and specifically the lower class when you talk about things like zero percent rates and you talk about uh what the real rate of inflation is versus what the cpi is dictating uh the fed continues to move the goalposts, and inflation is something where you know if you struggle to put together five hundred dollars in your savings account and you work at, let's say you work at a pizza hut and you live uh, in the hood in Philadelphia, near where I lived in Germantown, right? And you're able to scrap together 500 bucks for, I don't know, after three months of working. To you, that seems like uh, an accomplishment. And when you check on that 500, you're not getting interest. But, you know, a couple months later, the $500 is still there. But what's so nefarious and so odious about the system in place now is the purchasing power is being sucked from that money while it sits there. And the problem is that people in the lower class and people in the middle class even don't understand that. They don't understand that they're being robbed, but they can't see it. And it's not just the inflation too, Andy, that's that's robbing them of their purchasing power. It's the things like shrinkflation, which I talk about in products as well. You know, they may see prices go up uh, only 20 cents on a gallon of milk over the course of a year. But what they may not notice is that the packaging has changed and they're getting four ounces less than they used to be getting. And so on a price per ounce or a price per weight uh, metric, they're getting less at the store uh, than they think. And so the, it's this very like covert... A system that really preys upon the people that don't understand how it works. And that's why it really brutalizes the people who can least afford it. I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Not only that, this environment of super low interest rates allows 
here's more distortions for you, you know, with, with this, this environment creates opportunity for the wealthy because at low interest rates, they can borrow money at next to nothing and buy up assets uh, that are being fire sailed right now. And so for the wealthy, they're just going to get richer. And for the people who are trying to struggle to put money uh, away and save anything, and you're right, the, the, the debasement of the currency, the inflation is, is insidious. And it, it does it, you know, it, it, it will quietly, you know, the Fed has a mandate of 2% uh, per year inflation. I don't understand why there should be any inflation, it should be zero. But you know, that, that means every single year, in theory, your dollar buys you 2% less. But the reality of it is that the, the um, gauges that they use to measure inflation are skewed. The inflation is much higher. If you your listeners go to johnwilliamshadowstat.com and read him, he only, he, he's very factual and he shows you how they keep changing the, the, the tools or the gauges they use to measure inflation. And that inflation is running much higher and this last bailout is going to only exacerbate that and increase the inflation as the money is now leaving uh, instead of going directly into financial assets on wall street it's being given to the people and so you have much more money chasing fewer goods and services in a broken supply chain that is inflation and it's coming and that five hundred dollars will buy people not only a smaller package but it'll start costing a lot more money and there'll be fewer of those packages available so i think it's really quite frightening and um i think that's where you get into social unrest uh, that's where you get into um, some really big problems here domestically now heaven forbid you see a mass dumping of dollars by foreigners for whatever reason maybe the BRICS nations brazil russia india china south africa they they come up with their own gold-backed currency uh, and it starts to challenge the dollar for world world reserve currency status. Now, I I gave a speech in uh, Vancouver last July, and I showed a chart. This was at the Sprott Show, and I gave a, I showed a chart that J.P. Morgan Private Wealth keeps saying J.P. Morgan, but this uh, this group uh, of J.P. Morgan, the Private Wealth, is the entity or the division of their bank that works with the centimillionaires and the billionaires. And the, um, the chart was sent out to all of their depositors, the, the, the wealthiest people in the world. And it said that it showed a chart going back to the 1600s or, or before of all the world reserve currencies along the way. And it showed roughly a 45-year lifespan of each one of them, keeping in mind that we left the, the, closed the gold window, Nixon did, in 1971. We're already past our 45-year uh, average time frame of all the world reserve currencies. But basically what they said to their uber-wealthy depositors is that we would like you to mitigate your exposure to the U.S. dollar uh, through foreign currencies and precious metals because, get this, we believe the dollar will be challenged for singular world reserve status. So they're, they're telling their wealthy clients They've already reclassified gold as a tier one, and now they're telling their wealthy clients that the dollar's days as singular world reserve currency status are coming to an end, in their opinion, and so that you need to mitigate your exposure ahead of this to the dollar. So, um, you know, I, I think that I think that this is, if that were to happen, 
Now you're talking hyperinflation hits Main Street as massive dollars are dumped onto the uh, onto the market, and uh, and now you have a real problem real fast. So, yeah, inflation is a scary thing, uh, and interest rates at basically zero only add fuel to that fire. So, yeah, this this is a, a backdrop, a setup for us for really unprecedented scary times, man. And I, I think that anyone who looks at this logically would have a hard time debating that if you really look at the numbers. What does the price of gold look like to you in a hyperinflationary scenario like that or in a scenario where uh, we want to repeg the currency to gold? Well, that that's why, first of all, I do think you'll see a repegging of, of gold to a new digital dollar. Um, I do believe that. And I think there is no coincidence that a, a group like the Bank of International Settlements, they do not do things just for shits and giggles. Uh, they they reclassify gold for a reason, right? For a reason they did it. And if I had to guess, because they see the ultimate outcome for the dollar, that it's gone too far down the rabbit hole. Right. And so they will issue a new digital currency, uh, kill two birds with one stone, go cashless, which I've heard for two decades, three decades. I could never understand how they would do it. Uh, I would never think people would give up their cash. Well, here's how you do it. You say the virus lives on paper currency. Now you issue a, a digital currency, a digital dollar. Everyone has a smartphone or a credit card with a chip on it that has your your all your money. But uh, the blockchain, I think, would come in to validate all of the gold held backing the currency. Now, I don't think it would be a one-to-one backing because uh, that would hamstring them too much in, in being able to maneuver. So let's say you back 20% of each dollar with gold valued at 5,000, 8,000, 10,000, I don't know, pick a number and then peg it to it. It'll never come back down uh, and have the blockchain validate the gold on the ledger, which would uh, inhibit the amount of currency units that could be created based upon the amount of gold on the, on the ledger. I think that that is coming, but I think the only absolutes I've learned in 30 years, Chris, in this industry First, well, there's two absolutes, three. The first absolute is that there are no absolutes and things really, you can't say guaranteed in finance. It's just, there are too many crazy things. Hell, I live in Minnesota, the epicenter of stupidity. I never would have thought that things that I saw in my lifetime, I never would have thought we would see here in a place they call Minnesota Nice, where in, in, in January when it's five below zero and you see someone drive off the road people will get out of their car with no jacket and dress shoes and help them push out of a ditch that's right. that's min that's minnesota nice well you know the george floyd and all the stuff the the rioting the looting everything that happened here is beyond comprehension to most of us in minnesota but i i think that um you know we are heading into a period of time where these types of things can can really really happen quickly so I don't know what the future portrays, but I think it, it is, uh, it's frightening and it's scary. And you see these types of uh, monetary events uh, go on top of it uh, where, you know, people are struggling just to put food on their table and, and the value of their dollar is precipitously losing value. Um, I don't think it bodes well for the future of the dollar or for the future of this country. And um, it, it frightens me, concerns me an awful lot. And then you hear guys like Jim Rickards and 
my buddy George Gammon talking about fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar gold, and then becomes a question of you know fifty thousand dollars. Like, what the hell is fifty thousand dollars at that point, right? Well, yeah, I mean that 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 is the point. Is that uh, you know, look uh, when when after World War II, the GI Bill, the, they they were given life insurance. Life insurance policy for for the GI Bill was um, ten thousand dollars, you know. And, and when my father uh, graduated college in uh, in 1963, he told me his his dream would be to have a job that would pay him ten thousand dollars a year. He bought a brand new Corvette for under five thousand dollars in the early 70s. You know, look at what the value of the dollar is. That that's inflation. And, you know, people don't realize it, but now you have to pay, you know, almost $100,000 for a new Corvette. A $10,000 job wouldn't, uh, you know, you could, that wouldn't make ends meet, certainly, and uh, for a family. And so when you talk about inflation and what's happening, it's it's beginning to happen, I think, faster and faster and faster. But it's insidious to see how it just evolves. And the value of our dollar has precipitously lost value over time and will continue to do so. So um, these are, this is what the Federal Reserve has done. And since 1913, when they were established, the dollar is worth less than two cents of its 1913 value. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's crazy what's happened to the value of the dollar. Yeah. And it's fascinating that people don't really get that it, even more nefarious than the system itself is kind of how through the university system and through the complacency of the mainstream financial media and really through the ignorance of people in the industry too it's just accepted as the norm it's accepted that people know what they're doing it's accepted you know and that was one of the uh, one of the rude awakenings for me you know i wasn't i didn't get an mba i wasn't some uh financial whiz kid i just one day woke up and saw okay the central banks are acquiring gold so why are they doing that right and then you just ask all you got to do is ask a couple of questions all you got to do is get a rudimentary understanding of austrian economics to understand exactly how far off the path we have gone andy i want to thank you so much for your time this morning brother and will you please come back on at some point over the next couple of months because it's just it's been fascinating hearing from you and uh, I really appreciate your perspective. I would love to come back on your show anytime. And I'd also, as my appreciation for you having me on, I would like uh, your listeners to feel free to email me at andy at milesfranklin.com with questions. Uh, I will caveat that by saying, you know, we're getting thousands of phone calls and emails a week. And I do my best to keep up. I pass a lot of them out to my brokers uh, who have been with me most on on average of over 20 years and they're smart they're educated they can talk about economics about geopolitical events about precious metals they're not order takers but if you your listeners have questions we'll be happy to we'll be happy to answer them but not only that if you put the name of your podcast in uh, the subject line uh, I would be happy to offer them the lowest price on precious metals in the United States. Uh, I will beat any price that they can find. Um, and that's something that I would be happy and proud to do for as long as I possibly can. So a couple of things I'd like to touch on before you let me run. Uh, you number one, 
we are not an online company. We could talk for over two hours on the, the amount of fraud I have seen as the owner of a company made me close my online store. The stuff I would tell you would blow your listeners away. Uh, the level and sophistication and even state-sponsored sophistication of um, fraud, identity theft, uh, is it, it, it almost makes me laugh when I see the stuff that these people try to do and how good they are at it and some of the things they've gotten away with, some they haven't. But when I tell you it's insane, it is purely insanity. And so I closed my online store. We do things the old-fashioned way. It requires an email or a phone call. Uh, we are analog in a digital world, but there's a large portion of my psyche that feels better with that anyway. That gold does not belong <laughs> in the digital realm. It belongs analog. Um, and the second thing I'd like to mention to your listeners is about Miles Franklin's track record. Now, it's important you all know that uh, precious metals industry in the United States is federally non-regulated. That means if you get screwed, there's no governmental oversight committee that will come in and, and slap fines on a precious metals company and save you. It's the Wild West with the exception of my home state of Minnesota. Now, um, in 30 years, we've never had a customer complaint, not even one on Google, ever. And and our numbers are now almost $6 billion in transactions without a single complaint. We, have, um, we are one of only 24 companies ever approved by the United States Mint as an authorized reseller of their product. It is an incredibly difficult task to be approved by them you have to be nominated by a primary distributor uh and we were about a decade ago um it is maybe my most um a proud achievement uh, of, of our 30-year career uh, all of these you know a plus rating with the better business bureau never had any complaints all of these these accolades are something to be proud of in any business um but the state of minnesota doesn't care the state of Minnesota, where you're located, is the only state that said, screw it. Too many people are getting screwed in order to transact business either in the state as a company like mine or any of the online retailers throughout the country who try to sell into the state. If you're not licensed, bonded, and background checked, you're disqualified. And if you try to sell product from outside the state into the state, they'll issue a cease and desist and come after you. And so 99% of the online companies, my peers in the industry, have boycotted Minnesota because they would need to be subservient to the Department of Commerce the way that we are with a very large surty bond, seven figures, background checks of every employee and personnel annually, myself and included, and, and principals, um, and compliance and continuing education that no one in the industry has to abide by but us here in Minnesota. So what it means is, is that not only do, it, in my opinion, we have the best reputation in the industry, uh, but we are also licensed, bonded, and background checked. That bonding alone, that $2 million surety bond, is unlike any other company in the United States unless they're here in Minnesota. Because that simply means that if I steal every penny your listeners send to me and go hide on a beach in Tahiti, state of Minnesota has a $2 million surety bond to pay them back and send a bounty hunter to find me. That's the only state in the country that mandates that. So it'll be the safest transaction from a company with the best reputation, U.S. Mint approved, uh, licensed, bonded, background check, lowest prices in the industry, 
but you got to take an extra step and go old school and reach out to us. And if your listeners don't mind doing that, I'll make it a good experience. I'll try to answer as many questions and talk to as many of your listeners as I possibly can. And then at the same time, um, those that I can't, I'll pass off to, to a, uh, to a very, very, um, a senior broker and, uh, We'll try to earn your your listeners' business and make it a great experience, a safe one at the lowest price in the country. Fucking A. Awesome. And if you guys need cocktail recommendations for the weekend, you can reach out to me because that's what I'm an expert in. Andy, beautiful, man. I love it. You're a patriot. You're an intelligent guy. Uh, Get ready because you're definitely going to be getting some emails from my listeners. And again, I want to thank you very much for your time today. It is my pleasure, brother. Have me back on any time and... I'll look forward to catching up with you down the road. You stay safe and hope to talk to you real soon. Thanks again, Andy. Take care. That was the one and only Andy Schechtman from Miles Franklin blowing the lid off of metals market manipulation and talking about the unfortunate reality of what our monetary policy portends. Folks, you're going to want to hang in there because I have some real fire coming up over the next couple podcasts too. So how about that? Why don't you let this one digest, finish the rest of your brandy or whatever you're sipping on, and as soon as it does, I'm going to be back to punch you in the face with more truth and more reality. Ladies and gentlemen, this was the QTR Podcast, and I want to once again thank my patrons for making this podcast possible. For now, have a happy Friday. I'm the fuck out. Peace.